Welcome to Mongo Spaces again this Friday. The discussion will be around bonds. Uh, I, I mostly deal with equities myself, investment stocks and all. I rarely do venture into bonds. Uh, so this will be a great learning experience when people have engaged themselves in this uh, matters a lot. Today we are partnering with uh, the guys from MarketMark. They're here. Keegan is here. Kalia. So they will be handling most of the session today. I will be monitoring the DMs for questions. We have a pinned tweet, which has a, a poster for the event today. Uh, so where you can send in your questions and then we'll read them to the guests uh, later. So we have Kasiva, Sunil, uh, Churchill, and our co-host Kalia and Keegan tonight. Perhaps I could start with the co-hosts. They could start by introducing themselves. Let's start with Kalia. What do you do by day now that you're hosting spaces by night? We're hosting spaces on Friday nights. Thanks for, for having us. I consider myself a financial analyst or an investment analyst. I did financials both at undergrad and master's level. And I've worked previously at Centum. Uh, so I was at Centum for a bit of time. And currently I work as an investment analyst at a P fund that focuses on renewable energy called Berkeley Energy. In my spare time, I do have a podcast called Kenya's Market Map together with Keegan, another gentleman called Mr. Funny. Ideally, we usually just discuss events that have happened in the financial and capital markets and the business scene in Kenya and around the region. Uh, it's a weekly podcast. We normally record it on Saturdays, but the episodes come out on Mondays. You can find us on Spotify, Apple, Anchor, all the major podcast platforms as well as YouTube. So that's me in a nutshell. Over to you, Keegan. Thank you, Dan. My name is Keegan Kiprimo. I am an economist. Just like Dan, I happen to co-host Kenny's Market Map, which he has said, uh, it's a weekly podcast that uh, business activities that occur during the week and provides an in-depth analysis from the business services industry. I'm currently doing some work with the Kenya National Chamber of Commerce. And I must say, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Wango. Great. Churchill was having some issues, so I hope he's back. But in the meantime, we have Sunil here and let us know what you do by day. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Sunil Sanctus. I'm MD of Orion Advisory Services. We have been running now for close to 10 years. We are basically a wealth advisory firm dealing with high net worth, very active in the space of bonds. We used to be active in corporate bonds, but there's very little to be active on it on the, these days. So most of our work is on uh, treasury bonds. I have been working in the Kenyan bond markets for about 20 years and then maybe for another 15 years in, in debt markets in uh, India and elsewhere. So I have a fairly long ex on, on the bond side. And well, we'll be happy to take you through from the basics uh, to any uh, esoteric questions that we get on this uh, subject. Thanks. Kasiva, maybe you can tell us a little bit about yourself. My name is Kasiva. I run a portfolio for a few wealthy clients, mostly in bonds, and um, I've been doing this for the last three years. And it's a space that I'm interested in, both as an investor and also someone who runs a, a wealthy portfolio. So I'm glad to be able to share what I know. Good stuff. Churchill, I hope you join us on some points. I'll hand over to the co-hosts and then they can keep asking the questions for the next uh, 45 minutes. Just uh, to let you know that you can still send your questions just below the pinned tweet. You can DM us or market mark so that you can be able like, to check your questions in the second half of this uh, show. And Kigat, you can take over now. Thank you. Thank you so much, Eric. Just to outline how we'll have our discussion this evening, 
So we'll start by having a general understanding of bones and taking a particular focus on infrastructure bones. Then we we'll obviously move into the specific, the recently issued 19-year infrastructure bond. We have a discussion around that. And then we will also move into the section of IFB in relation to the economy as a whole and the public finance management, uh, a bit into the, the PFM Act as well. And finally, we'll have the question and answer session, as Eric had said. Remember, you can share your questions on the pinned tweet at Mongo Capital. You can also DM Mongo Capital. Let's begin by, and let me direct this to Sunil. First of all, are bonds, you know, and what are the different types of bonds? Okay. What is a bond? A bond is essentially a instrument by which a government or a company borrows money from the public. It, it's a loan that the company takes. And for the person who's giving the loan, it's an investment. You're lending the money to the company or to the government. How it is different from a loan is that a bond is a standardized product. The terms are fixed. Uh, so if uh, a specific bond is being issued, the rate at which it is being issued, the uh, period for which it is being issued, the interest payment dates, everything is fixed. And usually a bond is listed on a market and uh, is tradable. So in the case of bonds issued in Kenya, whether by the government of Kenya or by a corporate, uh, they get listed on the Nairobi Securities Exchange and can be uh, traded in the bond and sold in the secondary market. That is the basics of a bond. What are the types of bonds? Well, the most popular in this market, of course, are the treasury bonds. Yeah, we, a treasury bond is something that is issued by the government of Kenya or issued by Central Bank of Kenya on behalf of the uh, government of Kenya. These are the most active bonds uh, in the Kenyan market. I think more than 95% of the issues outstanding of the outstanding in the market are issued by the Kenyan government. Again, the bonds issued by the government are of uh, two types. One is the normal bonds, uh, which are the taxable bonds, what are commonly known in market parlance as FXD bonds. And the second is the infrastructure bonds or IFPs, which are a class of uh, tax-free bonds. Other than that, you can have uh, corporate bonds as well. That is a bond issued by a corporate. Now, without getting into too much details, most of the bond issuances in this market are fixed rate. That is, the rate is fixed uh, through the life of the bond. This is known as the coupon rate. So the bond uh, may be at, uh, fixed at a rate of 12% through the life. There are also a class of bonds called as floating rate bonds where the rates adjust uh, over a period, let's say every six months or every year, the rate will adjust. We used to have more of these in Kenya, but uh, now they have gone out of favor and we see very few floating rate bonds. Most of the bonds issued are fixed rate bonds. I hope that covers the question, Kigen. Yeah, thanks, Sunil. And I'll just think that Kilogut uh, was joined us. Churchill uh, is an economist who works at IC Group. Uh, Churchill, thank you. Yes, Mongo Capital, Caldeon. Good evening, good afternoon, good morning, wherever you're joining us from. My name is Churchill. I'm an economist at IC Group. So IC Group is an African investment company which has wealth management, asset management, global markets, which is basically trading of equities and stocks and also investment banking. I sit in the asset management unit of that business, IC Group. So essentially we're looking at opportunities in the Pan-African region, the whole of Africa, in the local fixed income instruments, both local and also foreign, that's durable. Essentially that's what I do. As an economist, I primarily look at the East African economies, just scouting for opportunities. Back to you, Tegan. 
just to, to, to pick up the discussion from where we had, Kasiva, if you could please share with our listeners IFBs and how do you differ from uh, the other different types of bonds? Infrastructure bonds are issued um, by the government. In this case, it's the CBK uh, that invites different bids from people to be able to make their bid. The funds that are raised are used for specific for the government that doesn't say specifically what the projects are, but they do differ from fixed bonds in terms of they do not attract any tax. There's a lot of attention, I mean, in terms of bids at any given time going up by the last infrastructure bond that was issued last year. There was there are more people who actually bidding for this bond as compared to the others. So that is one of the things that makes it different than the fixed um, coupon bond. And you also have a savings bond that trades on the secondary market. Yes. Thanks, Kathiva. So now back to, to the basics. I'm operating like we're in class. So it's bond investing 101. So for someone who, who wants to invest in bonds, someone who's interested in investing in bonds, how do they go about actually making an investment in a bond? Maybe Tachil, you could help us with this. Okay, thanks, Kalia, for this. Let me start with the minimum amounts. I'm talking about the Kenyan bonds. We're looking at 100,000 for the IFBs and 50,000 for the FXDs. That's the minimum. So as an investor, to get into bonds investing, you need to open a CDS account. Either through the Central Bank of Kenya, you have to go there physically if you choose that route, or you can go through your bank commercial banks, in this case, your stockbroker as other alternative channels for you to have an investment into bonds. With that, you're ready to go. Like uh, Churchill has dropped. So Neil, would you be kind enough to continue <laughs> from where he stopped? The first thing for investing, and this is for a treasury bond, uh, which includes the infrastructure bonds. You need to open an account with the Central Bank of Kenya. It's called a CDS account. You need to obtain a specific uh, form for the account, fill in that form. This requires a visit in person to the central bank after getting the form filled in. And there's a place where you need to sign in front of them. They take one to two weeks to open the account. For investors who are in the diaspora who are offshore, the central bank allows you to download the form from their website. This is not permitted for local clients. And then there is a set of instructions to follow about how to fill in the form and send it through, you need to have a local bank account in Kenya and you submit it through your bankers. So that is the first step to get started in investing in bonds. Once you have the account opened, then of course you can participate in future issues by the forms to be filled in and submitted to a central bank in what is called a bidding process. This is now also available of late, I think since last year, Central Bank has started doing this. Uh, you're allowed to bid through your phone as well. You need to register and then you can participate through your uh, phone as well. Thanks, uh, Sunil. It's pretty interesting when you mention that these days you can place a bid electronically. Back to the basics again. When someone needs to open a CDS account, you mentioned someone either go to the Central Bank or through a, a broker or through a commercial bank. At this point in time, is there any digital way? Can someone just open through the phone and just have a CDS account or you have to go and physically fill those forms? If you're a resident in Kenya, you need to personally visit the central bank office to open the account. There are some banks who are providing a facility to their customers. This is not across all banks. Uh, some banks allow you to buy the bonds through them and they will charge a small fee. 
and again uh, one or two brokers allow you to buy the bonds uh, in the primary uh, through them you know they maintain what they call a client account uh, with the central bank so those options are possible but i think for the longer term my advice is if you are serious about investing in bonds take the trouble and uh, open a cds account to make a visit to the central bank and then that account then stays forever provided you have some investment in it the account goes dormant if you don't have any investment or any activity for a period of one year my recommendation is to go through the central bank and do the investment for diaspora clients obviously you don't need to visit in person where there's a separate procedure for investors in the diaspora for diaspora clients the first requirement is to have an account with a bank in kenya without that you cannot make investment in bonds because that is the account through which you will make a payment to the central bank and all receive the interest and the maturity amount on the bond uh, once you have that account open, the form is available on the website. Uh, you need to fill in that form. Uh, you can download the form. It's uh, A4 size uh, form. You fill in your details. You have to send by post or by courier to your bank. Your bank then needs to complete the certain details on that. Uh, and then the bank is required to forward that uh, form to uh, CBK. So that procedure is available on the CBK website from the same place where you download the form. I've seen uh, you commenting on this a couple of times and maybe you could shed some light to people. Some banks I've seen, especially for instance, I know a bank like Standard Chartered allows you to invest in the bonds through their, their mobile app or through their mobile banking option, especially for the fixed, the normal bonds that are not the infrastructure bonds. You can invest through them. Is this the best option for someone to take? Will you get the best return using this option? Are there better and more? lucrative options maybe where you can get an extra percentage point using a different method you know different uh, banks have uh, different models there are some banks who will provide a platform from which you can invest and uh, source the bond from anywhere certain banks uh, including standard chartered have a closed system where you have to buy uh, or where you have to source your bonds and if you want to sell you have to sell it through them as well so there are pluses and minuses to both. I believe the stand chart, the web interface is very easy to use, but you are restricted to buying and selling from them. So that is a drawback. So at whatever price they are offering, you cannot shop around. If you're investing a small amount and not likely to buy or sell frequently, it may, it may work well. If you're likely to be investing larger amounts and have more frequent transactions, then possibly you need to look at an open source bank, which allows you to, you know, source from the market. As I said, the best option is to open an account with central bank. Okay. Before Churchill dropped, I think you were talking about uh, beating. So when guys are looking at bond, usually uh, that a bond is market, a market determined rate or you can give your own bid. What's usually the best way to go about this? Can I just bid and say I want 70% return or I want 70% interest if I select a ridiculous rate? For instance, right now, the ISB that is ongoing, if someone sets a rate of 20%, for instance, what are the chances of Treasury through the central bank uh, accepting this person's bid? I think I, I can check that question. There are two ways that you can be able to bid either competitive or non-competitive. And um, if you, you're a retail investor and you invest in less than 20 million, is the option of non-competitive. That is, you're going to get the average rate after all dates have been considered. 
that this um the competitive bit you get when you're using your phone um i'm going to assume that you're using tld that is star 866 hash that is what you use to be able to beat if it's competitive you get to decide based on the pleasure rate the bank rate whatever rate that you've been able to come up with you use that as you are um is your rate but that doesn't guarantee the previous one does guarantee that you're going to get the bid but the second one, that is not the case. It's too aggressive. It's automatically rejected. And if it it does meet within the range, which CBK has decided, of course, that is after bidding, then your bid is successful. But anything that is too aggressive is always automatically rejected. So Tatil, welcome back. So when you introduced, you mentioned that you look at opportunities, not only in Kenya, but around the region. So assuming someone wants to invest in a bond, let's say in Tanzania or Uganda or Rwanda, is this possible? Is it possible for someone to invest in bonds in other markets? And how do you go about doing this? Let's say invest in a bond in Tanzania or Uganda. I'm going to speak on Uganda, given that we did invest in one of the treasury bonds and we used a bank. Um, So that being a small fee to be able to get exposure to the Ugandan market. Probably if um, someone has been able to open like a CDS account in Uganda, they can tell us, but we've used the bank, of course, paying some fee to be able to get that. But did you use a local bank? It, it was like, yeah. So when you're considering buying a bond, are there other things that you would consider other than the rate that it's returning? Assuming a Ugandan bond, assuming it's returning 12.6%, which is similar to what we are getting here, is it worth it to then invest in Uganda or are there other things that you would need to look at before making that investment in a different country? Of course, um, given that you're investing not um, in Kenya shillings, you're going to use Uganda shillings. So that is something that you need to consider before you actually get to decide um, this is the FX risk exposure that you're going to get. At the same time, um, they also look at their withholding tax. So you need to be able to factor in. But so far, I, I wish that probably that's not something we did. Is it worth it so far? No, but I, in the future is probably something that is going to stay off. We're going to look into it. Uh, but again, we want just with exposure, but I wish we had just put all our cash in the previous um, infrastructure. Touching this back for the Ugandan and Tanzanian markets, do you have an idea? what the rates are compared to the Kenyan bond market. Thank you, Kali. you like a flavor for, unlike the Kenyan market, I think it's around tangible. But if you compare with, in terms of the coupon, they have to set coupons. That's the other thing. Whereby, unlike the Kenyan market, usually have what is called the market rate, which now determines what the coupon rate will be. But now for Tanzania, it's quite different. You find that uh, our share is around 15 for 95%. 20 years is around 15.75%, 15, 15 year is something around 13%, and those are preset. But now the, what happens is when you get to the secondary market, unlike Kenyan market, Tanzanian market, they don't have that effective yield curve. So you find that if you want to buy a bond, a uh, cash bond doesn't attract a withholding. Charge. But now you'll find that you'll 
to be paying a premium abroad for a hundred thousand, perhaps you may end up paying a hundred and eighteen thousand or a hundred and thirty-six thousand. So there's usually a wide discrepancy, but you find that the Fed buy at twenty, another person getting at hundred and thirty. So that's where some of this market is a bit inefficient. But I believe that once they have been able to gain curve, basically the yield curve just to bring everyone on board is whereby for every maturity, so a bond having a one year, two years of maturity today is the uh, 11th of February, 2022. So two years, 11th of February. So that's that bond that will be a yield that you can have all the way to 25 years. So that's where you can derive the yield curve. Every week, the, the NSC provides implied yield curve. So Tanzanian markets, you don't have so even in terms of difficulty. So if you look at the uh, Ugandan market is a bit more efficient, it's actually a surprise that it trades more volumes than the Kenyan market. It's quite boosted by the foreign inflows. So you find that their yields are also on a comparative basis, uh, taking you back to the ground. At 25 years, you are find that our yield is around 13%. The withholding tax more or less the same at 10% on the coupon rates. But more or less, it, it's quite efficient market. They have a smaller number of bonds that have been issued in the market 26. In total, uh, Kenyan market, if you look at the FXB, I think there are 40, 48 or something, excluding even the IFB. So just to give you a flavor of how these other East African markets look like. Thanks for that, Sachin. Uh, this, again, back to you, based on what, something that you've said. I'm actually surprised that the Ugandan market has more activity in the bond market, considering their currency is weaker than ours. And the 2% maybe spread or difference between a 25-year bond in Kenya and Uganda, do you think that 2% is the main reason why there's more activity in the Ugandan market or is there any other underlying uh, reason? From an external perspective, uh, if I look at the fundamental, it's quite low. I think it's between two to three percent. I think for the last two or three years back, and it's been quite steady. Currency has been quite stable, and it's let me put it this way: it's the rate that you see, if it's around three thousand five hundred and ten, I mean that's the rate that you can buy whether you are the bureau. So it's quite standard. It's quite an open currency. So from a foreign flow looking into uh, a wider African market and then they narrow down to East Africa based on the spreads. I mean, the coupon rate is quite high and then they can come in and go quickly there about. So it's quite attractive for them. And from an internal perspective, we have what is this thing called horizontal ripple. So limited ripple is a repurchase agreement whereby right now what we normally see on a daily basis is uh, CBT just assessing how liquid the system is. If there's an excess liquidity, it can mop up that excess liquidity by what is called a, a ripple instrument. If there is less liquidity as per what its assessment is, it might inject liquidity, liquidity by a reverse ripple instrument. So a horizontal ripple is whereby uh, banks do not deal with central banks, but now they deal with banks amongst themselves. But now this horizontal repo, uh, they require of collateral. So by collateral, the thing that you can think of is not the government securities. So based on this horizontal repo that is quite active in the Ugandan market, you find that there are 
trades. Number is also boosted by this horizontal repo activities, which now spikes up the volume. Another thing are uh, Ugandan markets, uh, compared to the Kenyan market, they have what is called the primary dealership, whereby they have like eight or nine banks who are set to, they are required now to bid competitively in any given auction. I think in any given auction for T-Bolts, it's around, uh, is it 600 billion uh, Ugandan shillings? So those eight banks are the ones which now the other participants, now they're giving uncompetitive bids. So even based on this primary dealer activity, you find that the, a number of secondary activities now stemming out of primary dealership. So those are some of the nuances that was trying to do a comparative analysis with your life uh, back to your career. Thanks for that, Chachi. So fi final question on maybe the Ugandan Tanzanian market still with you, Churchill, before coming back home. Do they also have a minimum investment amount and what is the minimum investment for this market? Yes, they do have a minimum investment amount, 100,000 their local currency or 100,000 100, and that's a mistake, and those are the minimum amounts that uh, those markets of the series and having 50,000. So those are the markets with around 100,000 minimum to invest. So basically, with, with 3,000 bond, Kenyan shilling, uh, I can invest in a Ugandan bond. Yeah, yeah. That may be another reason why they are more active. And like in Kenya, where you actually need like um 50,000 or 100,000, it almost what people can be able to have access to that kind of money. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty cool. I think we should do more of that. I know that the government had done something in Emakiba, which allowed people to invest 3,000, but it seems to have gone quiet. Sunil, might you have an idea why that happened? Or I haven't seen a lot of bonds being raised through Emakiba. Yeah, uh, thanks. Uh, the Emakiba bond was uh, actually uh, a very good uh, retail product because you could uh, do it over the, for, through your phone, pay by M-Pesa or, uh, you know, mobile money and invest as low as uh, 3000 I think they were operational, I mean, my understanding, and I did put in a small amount just to test how that uh, worked. I think there were certain operational issues with it. So they had problems doing reconciliations and uh, making sure that investors got uh, paid on time. And uh, I'm sure they'll come back because it was a very attractive investment product for individuals. It was a good way for the government to borrow and spread the saving culture. So I'm a little surprised that they have not uh, come back into the market yet. It's possibly that they are sorting out operational challenges. I think the CDSC had a change of uh, back office system as well. So I do hope that that comes back with the small amounts and that was pure subscription through your phone or through mobile phones. So I'm quite hopeful that product will come back though we haven't been hearing very much about it. So, and again, the rates on that were fairly attractive. I think it was about 10.5% tax-free if I remember uh, correctly. So uh, a very good product. I think uh, once operational issues are sorted out, it should come back again. But I think that's, that's I'm a good way of having more people investing in bonds in Kenya, especially. So before we move to the recently issued IFB, one last question to you, Sunil. You've mentioned that most bonds in Kenya tend to fixed rate bonds. And I'm asking you this because you're the veteran in the panel. Was there a time in Kenya where floating rate bonds were popular? Is there a time where that used to be the norm or has it always been fixed rate? And follow up question to that, 
is there a reason why there's a preference for fixed rate over floating rate bonds? Sure. I think the last uh, floating rate bond from the government was probably issued about, well, certainly more than 15 years ago. I think when the government started its borrowing program, it used to be largely borrowing through treasury bills. When they first started a bond program with longer term maturities, the initial way they started was by floating rate bonds because people are not sure how the rates are going to go in the future. And even that time, two years, three years was a long-term investment horizon. In that case, they used to be floating rate bonds. Typically, the uh, rate would be linked to the uh, 91-day treasury bill. So it would be 91-day treasury bill plus 0.5% or 1%. But gradually, I think people started preferring the fixed rate bonds merely because the rates were much better on the fixed rate bonds and people started getting confidence about reasonable stability of rates. So... Gradually, more and more people have moved away. Today, if you buy, uh, let's say this uh, 15 year, this 19 year bond is being issued at 12.5% tax free. If we, it was linked to treasury bills, you know, the 91 day treasury bill is about 7.25%, 364 day treasury bill is under 10%, about 9.6%. So if you invest in that, and even if it's 1% above the treasury bill uh, rate, you're going to get somewhere between 8 and 10%. So people would much rather take the risk and invest in a long-term bond, which is fixed rate. So I think that's one of the reasons why it is that some corporates again tried the floating rate bonds. So there have been corporate bond issues more lately with the floating rate bonds. But again, they offer a floating rate bond and a fixed rate bond and everybody goes for a fixed rate bond. I think it's just the experience that the return on funds is not good enough. That's the reason why they've gone out of favor. Okay, thanks. Just to add to what Sunil said, also the zero coupon bond. I think Central, it's three MTN was a zero coupon bond, which more or less acts like a table, but now for three years. That's just what I just want to add. Thanks, thanks Sachin. Now that you mentioned uh, the Central Real Estate Bond, and talking about corporate bonds in Kenya generally, how easy is it for a retail investor to invest into a corporate bond as compared to uh, government bonds, and what are the risks associated with a corporate bond that maybe would not have to consider when it comes to a government bond? Uh, I think with the corporate bond, uh, it's the entry is more or less the same with the government bond. I mean, the usual route to the NSA is through a public offer, save for a number of the issues are usually private placement, whereby they just target a number of uh, institutional investors, which I think was the same case with the Centum Ray and I think also EABL. So for retail investors, we saw with EABL last year, we saw with Family Bank last year. So that period of uh, public of IPO period, where before antiquity comes to be listed in the uh, NSA, it's the same period that even any retail investor can be able to come in, similar to the government's bonds issues, uh, which is usually like a two-week or one-week period of sale. So that's where they can be able to come in at the point. What I'm talking about is at the primary market up until this point. At this point, and then if you want to compare with the government's bonds, uh, corporate bonds tends to be a bit illiquid. Looking at even the trades, the turnover, they're quite illiquid. For instance, if you bought a sell bond, sell bond or family bank bond, probably chances are if you might want to exit midway, it might be a bit difficult because of that illiquidity. And like now the government securities, whereby you can be able to execute that uh, trade that you might want. Corporate bonds tends to be illiquid, so you may just hold it until maturity. 
So that's the risk that comes in. The other risk, unlike the government bond, which is more or less backed by the government of Kenya, corporate bonds are just relying with the corporate that specific uh, bond. So in this case, we have EABL, Family Bank, Santa Marie, those have been suspended. We have real people also having its own issues and yeah, Econ. So those are the bonds, corporate bonds that have been listed right now. So it just comes down to the quality of the issuer. And it, this kept in a tangible way last year, had a family bank and EABL. People had seen their cycle that come to the market before they have been assessed. And then that even gave investors confidence now to come back and give them money again. And like any other issuer who might come in and you don't have that, perhaps you're not deemed to be of a quality grade, it becomes a bit of an issue. So those are the risky aspects regarding corporate bonds. Let me add a little bit to what Churchill has said during my long time in this uh, market. The corporate bond market used to be much more active, uh, let's say 10 years ago than it is today, which is a bit unfortunate. I think the biggest and the best corporate bond issue we had was in uh, 2009 from KenGen. And back in 2009, they issued uh, a 25 billion uh, bond, which was uh, fully subscribed. If we compare to what is being issued these days by East African breweries or by family bank, you know, the issue sizes are 3 billion or 5 billion. And this is 15 years later, whereas considering what Kenjian did that time, corporate should be issuing a 50 billion bond, not a 5 billion bond at this stage. And the Kenjian bond, and at that time, they were also banked in the market, which used to trade fairly actively. I think Stanbic used to be an issuer. I think Barclays also has issued bonds in the past. And it used to be a relatively liquid market. And again, this would go through the Nairobi Securities Exchange to your stockbroker. The unfortunate or the tragic events that we had in the corporate bond market was uh, the failure of these two banks in 2014-15, starting off with Imperial Bank and Chase Bank, both of whom had issued bonds at the time that they failed. And that really put investors off from investing in uh, corporate bonds. In fact, even uh, Safaricom had a, had a corporate bond earlier and these were relatively liquid and they used to trade in the market. But I think after the uh, debacle of uh, Imperial Bank and uh, Chase Bank, uh, investors stayed away from corporate bonds and similarly issues found it difficult to issue. So there were very few bond issues. We saw some kind of a revival in 2020-21 uh, into December 2020. Them issued their corporate bond, Ascendium Real Estate, uh, which was in Zero coupon bond, I think, as Churchill mentioned earlier. And then again, family bank and East African breweries issued. So it's good to see corporate issuers, uh, good corporate issuers coming back into the market. There is a little bit of a challenge on liquidity of the bonds current. If uh, people want to invest in, in a corporate bond in the secondary market uh, as well, I mean, that's what people like us are there in the market for, sourcing the bond for investors. So we do, uh, we do look around for bonds and, and try to get them for clients. So. Things like Centum bond, for instance, is available in the secondary market. The family bank bond also can be traded in the secondary market. East African breweries seems to have gone more into investors who are not very interested in trading the bond. But survival of the bond market and really if uh, Kenjen could issue a 25 billion sized bond in 2009, there's no reason why you can't get a big issue. And the big size issue is what 
contributes to liquidity and trading. So Faricom was to issue 10 billion or Kenjian was to come back into the market with a 20 or 30, we would see good uh, trading on that bond. Thanks. Thanks. Talking of one example of a bond, we saw that the KMRC less, it's not a common bond, like compared to what, how they're repaying their bond, amortizing as opposed to paying interest and then principal at the end. I'll start with Sunil and then Churchill to get your thoughts on the KMRC bond. Is it a bond that makes sense or not? Short answer, no. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. I, I don't think the people who have designed the bond, traded a bond or probably invested in a bond in their working lives because this is not how a bond is structured. This is a corporate loan, which they have called a bond effectively. And 1.4 billion, uh, I don't think we should waste time discussing that bond. Uh, I don't know if Churchill, you have different views. Well, uh, not that extreme views, uh, but I also struggle to wrap my mind around this yearly amortization. As soon as I say this 1.4 billion, I mean, it's even a quarter of a 91-day T-bill that CBK comes to seek out in the market in any given week. So why do you go on and amortizing? And you already know that KMC is backed by the government implicitly, even if not explicitly. So I really struggle to get my thoughts around this amortizing. Well, you might argue that it's going to refinance mortgages and nature of mortgages are whereby you can pay your interest together with the principal at the same time. But why do you also more or less mirror that as your corporate bond? I, I didn't even get it. So that's also my sentiments around that. Yeah. To add on that, and maybe I, I see the term amortization may not be uh, very familiar to people. Bonds uh, typically are of uh, two types. I think we didn't uh, about this when we spoke about the bonds in the beginning. So on usually, or a lot of the bonds are what are called uh, bullet repayment bonds. So you buy a bond today, a five-year bond. At the end of five years, you get your principal back in one shot. So that is what is called as a bullet uh, repayment bond. Then there are other bonds which are uh, amortizing, so in which the principal is uh, repaid uh, periodically. So, for instance, again, the most uh, popular uh, in the corporate bonds as an amortizing bond was the uh, Kenjian bond, which the principal was repaid in 16 uh, equal installments. So every half year they were paying uh, one sixteenth of the bond value back to them. Again, in the treasury bonds in this market, the Infrastructures all have all have an amortizing uh, feature. So there is a, for instance, this new 19-year bond has a principal repayment of 50%. I think after 10 years, and then the balance 50% uh, is paid after nine years. So that is called an amortization. The KMRC bond has uh, something. The repayments are a little bit crazy with the way that it has been structured. If you invested one million in the bond. After one year, it's some odd amount and you'll be left with a bond of 901,642. I mean, so it's a ridiculous number. If somebody had, uh, who knew about bond markets had designed it, they would have repaid 100,000 and you would have had a bond of 900,000. And nobody repays uh, such an odd amount on the bond. So that's why I said it's been designed by people who have never uh, invested in the bond market or traded in bonds. That's what I have to mention. So I think the government has come to the market. And it's looking to raise 75 billion through a 19 year, a 19 year infrastructure bond. And the coupon rate, they've said it's market determined, but Churchill, what do you think the interest rate will be or the coupon rate will be for this bond? Thanks, Kalia. 
So for most investors who might just want to indication of where the yield might likely fall for this 19 year paper might perhaps look at uh, the yield curve. As I mentioned earlier, the yield curve is, it more or less gives you year to maturity from year one all the way to year, I think 23. There's a specific rate that is attached to that. And based on the yield curve is given how the banks benchmark what are the loans that they want to give to their, to their clients. For this specific issue, the yield curve may not be the proper indicator in the sense that infrastructure bond feature that Sunil mentioned on earlier, you, you can't see it in that yield curve. So if you go to the yield curve and you see uh, where the 19 year is, it may not give you an indicative place of where to put in your bid. So what uh, market participants look at, they look at uh, bonds which have more or less maturities to where this 19 year bond will be. This maturing in 2041, 2022 plus 19 years now. So there's a, there's a 39 year, 2039 maturity, and then there's a 2042 maturity. So I haven't looked at the yields of where those maturities closed this week ahead of this call, but at the end of last week, I think there were something 12.1% to around 12.3% give or take a few figures there. And as you go to the market, I just need to give some headroom, some to the upper side. So like a plus 0.3% or 0.4% on where these maturities are. So just doing the math, I'm looking at around uh, between 12.5%, 12.7% as more or less where the average of the accepted auctions will be. Obviously the CBK has its own cutoff. So cutoff is like the, 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 the highest yield that it accepts. And then till that is above that cutoff yield, the ones which are rejected. So for instance, let me just say the cutoff is around 13%, but don't quite I'm just saying top of my head that the cutoff is around 13%. So all those investors who be then above 13%, their bids will be rejected. And all those investors who bid below 13%, that's where uh, the weighted average of accepted bid comes about from those bids that have been placed in. Obviously, the implication is this, this inverse relationship between yield. The higher the yield, the lower the bond price, the lower the bond price or the lower the amount that you'll be able to give to the government. That the government is trying to get money. That's why they look at those bonds that are at least more or less not crazier yields so that they can be able to get up. Uh, so can chime in at this point. Sure. Yeah. Thanks. Eric and Kali, I've seen some of the comments and this is the problem with us. We're doing this day in, day out. We tend to throw words and terms out, which we use every day, but I'm sure a lot of people don't understand. So please uh, check us <laughs> and please ask us to go slow or to explain the terms. Maybe simple terms like what is a coupon? Uh, some people don't get it. A yield curve, Churchill has talked about it. Amortization a little bit. Maybe you can take like three minutes to give a a really simple perspective on terms that we're using. Sure. Okay. There are two or three terms associated with investing in bonds. So first is the face value. That is the amount of which, uh, let's say you're investing in. So let's say if you're investing in a bond with a face value of 1 million. So that is the amount which the central bank uh, records in its books as uh, the investment made. Yeah. And then with each bond, there is something called a coupon rate. 
So let's say for this new bond, the coupon rate is 12 and a half percent, which essentially means that on 1 million, you will be receiving an interest of 12 and a half percent per year. So an interest of 125,000 per year. So that is what is the coupon rate. It's coupon rate by the face value of the bond is the interest that is paid. So 12 and a half percent will be fixed through the life of the bond. This is paid in uh, two installments. So it is paid every six months. The dates are fixed. If you look prospectus, which is there in the newspapers and on the CBK website, the dates on which the interest will be paid right up to the maturity of the bond is a bond is given. So on those dates, you will get the face value into the coupon rate and half of that every, every six months. Again, on the term amortization is just a, a repayment, as I told you, you know, this bond, uh, which is being issued has uh, principal repayments in two installments. There's one repayment after, uh, is it 10 years and one, the final repayment on the 19th year. Once there is the principal is being repaid more than once, you know, paid in installments, let's say that is what is called amortization. So it's just an installment repayment of the amount that you have invested. The technical term that we tend to throw around is amortization for that. So it's essentially an installment payment. Those are the terms I provide a little bit clearer on this. So we were speaking about what is the expected coupon rate on this. That is what is the expected interest the central bank is going to pay on this bond. So the way the central bank has been doing most of their issues for the last few years is they say the coupon rate will be market determined. Happens is the big boys and really as individual investors, we should not bother too much about this, but the big boys, the banks, the pension funds, etc., will give uh, bids and say that at a rate of 12 and a half percent, we can invest, let's say hundred million or 200 million at, at a rate of 12.75, we can invest 500 million. If we get 13%, we'll invest another 500 million. So the central bank takes all the bids that it gets, and these are called competitive bids. And based on that, they decide where they are, what is, if they are looking for 75 billion, what rate will they complete their borrowing of 75 billion? And then they work out the average rate, which has been bid by the big boys. And that is decided as the coupon rate. Yeah, so in this, the expectation, I think Churchill mentioned uh, uh, range and I, Tend to agree with them. I think between 12.6 to 12.7 is likely where the central bank will decide on issuing the bond at the average rate. Now for individual investors, for retail investors, for amounts as high as 20 million, we shouldn't bother with these calculations and this permutation of where it will be issued. For individual investors, we generally advise to go for what is called non-competitive bidding. So you say, I want to invest 1 million and I will take whatever rate is decided. Uh, by the central bank based on the bids of the big boys. So that's uh, what is called as a non-competitive bid. So you just say you want to invest your money and you will take whatever rate is determined from the market. So that is a non-competitive bid where most individual investors uh, tend to enter, except of course high net worth who have got you know big amounts to throw around, but the average individual investor will go in on a non-competitive basis. Okay, thanks Neil. So Chachi, when somebody looks at bond prices, sometimes they see clean price, dirty price, what is that? The short answer to that is a dirty price is basically the clean price plus interest has been accrued. But of course, this is all great to anyone who is serious, uh, who has not interacted with bonds before. So let me try and simplify it uh, so that everyone will be on the same page. Imagine you go to a bank and you ask for on over 100 shillings, interest of 5% to be paid in one year. 
So based on that simple math, it means that in one year, you owe the bank 105, you're given a hundred now, but then the future price of this a hundred is 105 shillings. But let's take another example using this 105 in one's time. Assuming that there's another person who in one year's time will pay the bank 105, but yet the interest that they're receiving is at 7%. Are you with me? So it means that that person's might be lower than 100, say at 98, because it's entire for him to pay the bank 105. So for an interest of 7%, so we find that that person has been lent 98 by the bank, interest of 7%, so at the payback 105. So we look at another person who in year one owes the bank 105, but yet his or her interest is 3%. So we find that what the bank will give him today is say 102 thereabout. And then with an interest of 3%, he or she will owe the bank 105. So more or less, this is how the bank, uh, the present work. This, the, this, what is called par value, uh, par, par pricing. There's a discount pricing. There's a premium pricing. So the person got a loan out of a hundred. So less, that is the investor who goes to this auction next week. And then will be required to, to pay for every a hundred thousand minimum. He or she will be asked to pay a hundred thousand. So that is there. He's paying the fifth value of that bond, which is a hundred thousand. They're just trying to make the math a bit, uh, simple. And then for an investor who pays 98, because there are some people who pay 98 in this auction. So probably their yield was quite higher than the person who bidding at uh, the person who ended up paying at a hundred. So this person who is paying 98,000 is at discount pricing. And then we have somebody who will end up paying 102,000. So that's a premium pricing. So those are different pricing uh, of the bond. So once the bond starts trading, remember this bond pays interest every six months. And if it pays a uh, 12% interest in any given year, so every six months, that 6% on the face value, not the price that you paid on the face value of the bond, which could be around a 6% of that. So you, each and every day that the bond starts trading in the secondary market, you start accruing that 6%. So in the event that you want to sell that bond to somebody, so that person will have to pay that price of the bond, uh, which is inclusive of the accrued premium, because basically how the bond pricing work is just discounting future cash flows. As I walked you the example before about this loan, whereby you just owe a bank 105 of a year one, but what is the present value of that 105? at the end of year one. So basically that's how board pricing works. So now to answer you, the clean price, that price, the price that discounts those future cash flows, all those interest payments that will receive every six months and the eventual uh, value or initial investment that you issued, discounting them 
with the particular yield that automatically gives you the that price which if you deduct that portion of interest that has been accrued comes to the clean price. I hope I have clarified. If not, I know Sunil might come and simplify if I use some jargon in between. It's a difficult subject. Unfortunately, bond trading and bond pricing involves a lot of mathematics. Yeah. And even those of us who have been doing it for years, it's there on our Excel spreadsheets. You know, if you ask, if you ask me to work out the mathematics using a cash a normal calculator or, you know, trying to put in the formulas on a spreadsheet is very difficult. So uh, again, understand the challenge in trying to explain this to, to people. So in the bond market, we talk of something called yield. Effectively yield, the yield means the effective return that an investor is getting on a bond. In the secondary market, once the bond has been issued by the central bank, the price of the bond keeps uh, moving up and down. Yeah, it can move uh, either direction, much like in the case of uh, shares. So that is determined by something called the yield. And then uh, there is a uh, involved in mathematics and involved in, uh, we put that yield on our spreadsheets and then we get the price at which the bond is to be traded. So the price can be, let's say for a 1 million bond, you could be paying more than 1 million uh, to buy a bond which is then said that the bond is at a premium or you could get a, there are occasions when you could get you know, the bond at uh, less than 1 million, which is called a discount. Yeah. So this is uh, based on what uh, yield is uh, the market is trading the bond at, and that's what the market operates at. What is, let's say the effective return of the bond. So the bond may have been issued at 12.5%, but three months later, it could be trading at a different effective return. The various uh, reasons why the price could move. That determines the price, and this is known as the clean price. The dirty price is, I don't like to use the term dirty price, which is very commonly thrown around in the market. It's basically the price plus accrued interest because each bond pays interest every six months. So if you buy the bond in the middle of the six month period, let's say the last interest was paid in uh, January and the next interest is due in July. If you buy the bond in March, there is an interest accrued for the two months, which you have to pay to the seller. So when you add that, that is the price or the clean price plus accrued interest, which in jargon we call dirty price. And people always get confused. Why am I paying something that's dirty? <laughs> but it's the price plus accrued interest because you owe the accrued interest to the seller. I hope that clarifies a little bit, but I know it's not easy to explain this in a forum like this. Yeah, that was a lot to take in. But thanks, Chad Kasiva. Um, assuming you've placed a bid, a bond that you get the news that your bid has been accepted. What's the process after that? I'm assuming that as a retail investor, you use the non-competitive bid and I've been notified either by mail or um, text that my bid successful. It means now I can proceed and um, make a deposit for the amount of money that I paid to bid for. Probably if it's a million, um, less than a million, you can be able to avail a check. And if it's more than that, you do um, a bank transfer. Something else that you need to be careful. If your bid is accepted and for some reason, probably something happens between uh, Monday and Tuesday, if you don't proceed and deposit the money as agreed, they could actually uh, ban you from uh, participating further um, in the bond market. So you need to ensure when it's successful, you proceed and deposit the cash that you had put in your bid. So that is how you proceed. So you have to bid in, when it's successful, you um, deposit the amount of cash. I mean, that is worth less than a million. A check is okay. 
more than that you can be able to do and, and, and transfer. That, that is, I'm speaking from a retail point uh, of an investor, probably I'm touching and you can speak on probably even like more than a hundred million. And, and perhaps before we go to Churchill, you could tell us how do you get the coupon in your account when it's time for it to be paid? How, how do you get it? For coupon payment, you provide details for a commercial bank. When you're opening, I'm assuming that you do have a CDS account. You require to have a local bank account. So they use your local bank account to be able to deposit. Other guys that I know, you always get your cash uh, by one. It's really straightforward. It's once you've been able to deposit the cash um, that you had agreed and six months have elapsed, you'll be able to get your coupon amount uh, before one. Yeah, thanks. I have a question generally to, I don't know who would take this. I'll, I'll figure it by, by the end of the question. So practically speaking, let's take the example of a chama. Um, assuming as an individual, your net may be able to raise 50,000. Uh, but taking the example of a chama where every month uh, you're contributing X amount, and most chamas love real estate. So is assuming you guys come together and instead of saving up to uh, real estate, is it possible to be investing every month on a bond? So I think the original question is how often are bonds issued in this market? Does the government issue a bond every month? Or how frequent is it? I can check that one. We do have a fixed coupon board that are issued almost every single month. It could be a new issue, an open an open bond or reset top sell, and that is something probably you've seen. So every single month or after every two months, there's always a bond being issued. But it could be a new issue, like I'd mentioned, and we come back uh, to be able to get the difference. Uh, so a child mark can be able to invest in a fixed bond every single month. But again, fixed bonds also do attract a high interest rate with all the impacts of 15% or 10%. Chamas can actually invest every single month. There's always a bond that is on offer and more like two or three infrastructure bond fuels. Um, yeah, that is something they should consider. This type of asset classes actually at high return is compared um, to real estate and probably through discussion and talking about financial literacy. It's a type of asset class that they can consider investing in, given that um, the cooks, they know they're going to receive a um, certain amount of income twice during the year. Let me just add a little bit to that, to this question which Kalia asked and which uh, Kasiva uh, contributed on. See, the, it's possible to invest every month in a bond. My suggestion would be that it's better to invest chunky amounts in bonds. You don't want to be investing odd amounts uh, every month and then you are one time you're investing in a 20-year bond, next time you're investing in a 15-year bond, then there's an 18-year bond. That's probably not the best feature. And we haven't spoken much about investing in the secondary market. And I think people need to also look at that because this bond is a 19-year bond. Interest rate, let's say, is 12.5, 12 12.6, uh, very attractive interest rate. But are you a 19-year investor? That's what you have to think about. So... There is also a secondary market and there are players in the secondary market. There are brokers, there are people like us who are active in the secondary market. So if your investment horizon is five years, maybe you should be looking for a bond in the secondary market, which gives you five years. And again, for a chama, maybe you're collecting and at the end of the day, your interest is to buy property, but you need to build up funds over a period of five years before you can 
uh, buy a substantial property. Then you should be looking for a bond, which is an investment period for uh, five years. So, and that's where you go into the secondary market and you talk to people who are active in the second and look for the bond, which matches your investment period. I mean, you should not just say, I'm going to buy a 12 and a half year bond because that is what is being issued from the central bank. Be aware that it's a 19 year bond. And if you invest an amount of a billion or less, it's very difficult to dispose of it down the road. So I think one needs to take as well, you know, what is your investment horizon? What period are you comfortable investing for? And look for an appropriate bond. That's an additional word of caution. You know, I mean, everybody should not jump into a 19 year uh, maturity bond just because it's giving uh, 12 and a half percent. It must also suit your investment uh, horizon, your investment needs. And so Sunil, even assuming someone invests in the 19 year bond, how easy is it to exit through the secondary market? If you want to, let's say, get back your capital, with another opportunity you found, how easy is it to do that once you've invested in it? Do you have to wait until the end? See, again, it, it depends on the size of the bond. If it is less than a million that you're investing, I think you should be prepared to hold to maturity because it's very difficult to sell uh, a small lot of the bond. Now, unfortunately, in the bond market, what is considered as a market lot is, is 100 million, which is a big amount. Okay. And which is where the banks and the insurance companies and others operate. For the individual investors, once you get to a size of 10 million and particularly on infrastructure bonds, yes, uh, you could sell it. But the smaller the amount and particularly on the taxable bonds, it becomes more and more challenging to try and sell the bond before maturity. So there is a market, the bonds are listed on the securities exchange, but unfortunately the market is skewed and uh, skewed towards volume. So the smaller the bond size, uh, the more difficult it is to get a price. And then also you'll be paying a large spread if you're trying to sell a small lot. So that's a word of caution in investing. What? Okay. I did not know that. My assumption was... As long as it's tradable in the, in, in the market, it's easy to, to exit. So basically the key takeaway from that is if you're starting out, if you're especially playing with the minimum amount, it's better to play with the shorter yield bonds. That's what you're saying. Yes. I think, yeah, if you're comfortable and you're reasonably confident that you're going to hold the bond for the next three years or five years, then that's what you should be looking for uh, investing, looking for a bond, which is three years or five years to go. Yeah, rather than putting your money in a 19-year bond when you're uncertain and what you'll be doing after three years. Okay, thanks, Sunil. Chachi, so assuming you opted to take maybe the 19-year bond or five-year or even 10-year bond, and at the time of buying it, the interest rate was 12%, and then something happens in the market and inflation goes crazy. So it rises to 8, 10, maybe even higher than the 12%. Is there anything that you can do at this point or do you just accept that you're losing money because in inflation has risen? Is there any remedy or action you can take when inflation dies to, to help protect your investment? Thanks, Kalia. Good questions and a complicated question also in the sense that it depends also with at the point that you're going to, to sell this uh, particular bond. And you've entered it today, probably you'll exit in six months down the line. So more likely than not, if you bought it at around 12%, so that's what you call the yield or I'm just assuming uh, it's the coupon rate. Let me 
simplify things here. I think at this point, we all know what the coupon rate is. That's the interest that you expect to receive every six months. So that coupon, if it's 12%, and then you just expect 6% every six months for the life of the bond. So the yield might be at 12%. So basically the yield, the long name for that is yield to maturity. So basically at the price that you have bought the, the bond at, basically if the yield you are told is 12% is telling you that up until maturity, uh, this is basically what the yield will be. So to your question, because of a multiple of factors probably drops to uh, whatever, 8% or rises to 16% because of a multitude of factors. So that de determines the yield of that bond at that specific point, six months down the line. So you bought it at 12% yield. And if it rises to 16%, because for instance, central bank has increased its rates from 7% to 14%, suddenly everyone is in a panic mode. Banks have also spiked up their lending rate and everything is chaos. So you find that even the bond market reacts to that. Inflation has gone up. All those factors coming into play drives also the yield prices if you want to buy and sell. So if it goes up because of the inverse relationship between bond yield and the bond prices, there's a high likelihood that if you bought it at 12%, by the time you're selling it at 16%, within one year, you'll be selling it at a loss because of that inverse relation. Basically, bond yields and bond prices are two sides of the same coin. Uh, a broker, Sunil, Kasiva will either quote to you a yield or will tell you buy it at this price, but basically two sides of the same coin. Uh, so the higher the yield, the lower the bond price that you'll get. So this is just an example that I'm assuming the bond will be sold within one year. It can be sold say in year 10. So, and this is a 19 year bond. So that means that like nine years too much, it will not be you're selling it at year 10. It will be like a nine year bond because it has just nine years to maturity. So it might not have a yield of 12% at that year, 10. It might be most likely than not, it could be lower than that. It could even be around 8%. That's giving it an example. Probably you'll still sell it at a profit. I'm using this word loosely. You'll be selling it at a premium, but just based on the number of factors that will be playing around at the point of selling it. It's like the way you get into the equities market. You bought your safari com say to eight during the IPO. It went down, it goes up. So that's more or less the same thing that plays out even in the uh, fixed income markets, the bonds trading. So yeah, it depends with the factors at that point of selling price. But that is the capital appreciation bit about it. If I may bring the equities analogy, all along you've already received your coupons, your interest payments, but now the price that you'll be able to get, remember that that face value, say you're buying uh, a bond with a face value of 100,000 and perhaps you buy it with 100,000 shillings and by the time you're selling it, perhaps you'll get 106,000 or you'll get 94,000 shillings. So more or less. Think about it in equities, that's similar to like a capital appreciation, but all along you have income to your portfolio. 
similar to what you get in dividends in equities, at least bringing equities into this conversation, at least some of our listeners can be able to understand. Back to you, Kalia. I don't know whether Sunil or Kaseva can chime in. There's also, I think Churchill mentioned about the exit strategy, which could be in on the NAC that is in the secondary market. You can also sell it back to CBK, which they tried to discourage and they're going to um, buy it from you at a higher interest rate. And Churchill has spoken of um, a CISO kind of relationship that is there for bond price and the interest rate. If you decide to sell it back, to CBK, you're actually going to get less the face value of what you'd have gotten had you waited until maturity. So you should think about, like Sunil said, you should really think about the exit strategy, but you can sell it on the square market or you can sell it back to uh, CBK. Yeah, thanks, uh, Churchill Kasiva, for tackling that. When I look at the redemption structure, which you touched on earlier of this ISB, there will be an earlier redemption of 50% of an encumbered outstanding principal amount. So my question is, what is an encumbered outstanding principal amount? What is that? What does that mean? Again, a lot of jargon. Okay. So basically this uh, bond, uh, the principal will be repaid in two installments, 50% at the end of 10 years and the balance 50% at the end of uh, the 19th year. There are a few exceptions to this. Firstly, if you are investing uh, up to amount of 1 million, Central bank will repay you in one shot at the end of uh, 10 years. They don't want to keep the small amounts uh, with them. So if you are uh, investing for an amount of less than uh, 1 million or up to 1 million, then this is a 10-year bond, not a 19-year bond. So just keep that in mind. The second thing, unencumbered and uh, all that uh, means is sometimes you can use these bonds as security for a loan with your bank. So if you have taken a loan where you have used this bond as a security, then the bond is encumbered, so to say. Yeah. So if you have taken a loan and the bond is under lien, the bond has been charged to a bank, then you will not be repaid any principal in 10 years. You will only be repaid at the end of 19 years. That's what is meant by unencumbered, unencumbered bond. So the two exceptions to the repayment, one is if you are less than 1 million, then you get repaid at one shot. If you have taken a loan using this bond as a security, you will be paid nothing at the end of 10 years. You will only be repaid after 19 years. But those are the two exceptions. Okay, thanks. We do have 20 more minutes or 19 more minutes. So to the general public, it's a good time to send in uh, your question. But Sunil, you mentioned something interesting, that you can use your bond to get a loan from banks. So I have two questions. The first one is, for a government bond, when you use it as security for a loan, would you get up to the maximum amount that you've invested? For instance, if I've invested 100,000, will a bank give me a loan of 100,000 or will they give me a portion of that? And secondly, assuming I have invested in a corporate bond, will a bank view a corporate bond differently as compared to a government bond? Well, of course, uh, a corporate bond should be viewed differently from a treasury bond. On a good corporate bond, let's say if you have a bond of uh, East African breweries, for instance. Again, this depends on your negotiation and your relationship with the bank, but you should get at least uh, 50% of the amount uh, of the face value. That's at a minimum. And above that, then it depends on your relationship and your bargaining power with the bank. On a treasury bond, uh, 
lot of banks start out at 50% again to give 50% of the face value as the amount that they will lend, which really is too low on a treasury bond where you will not get 100%, but a good figure that one should get on a treasury bond is at least 80% of the face value. But again, this is an individual discussion between the borrower and the, and the bank, but certainly on a treasury bond, you can negotiate for up to 80%. On a corporate bond, my experience is, you know, 50 and you can at best push it to 60% uh, of the face value as the amount that could be borrowed. I trust uh, that answers the question. I, I've seen a couple of other questions. I could address those as well. Yeah. So there was some question on secondary market. Secondary market is essentially the Nairobi Securities Exchange. The bonds are NSE and they are traded through the NSE. So you do need to go through a stockbroker. Or uh, advisor like us who then takes you through a stockbroker, but the uh, secondary market trade will take place on the uh, Nairobi Securities Exchange. So you do need a broking relationship ultimately. Yeah, whether you go directly to a broker or you go through a advisor or an agent. So that's uh, where you work on the secondary market. There was a question on uh, default risk. Governments don't default on their uh, local currency debt. You may find some instances across the world in the last hundred years, but it normally does not happen. So a default risk is very unlikely, very, very minute possibility that the central power, that a government would default on its own local currency debt. The real risk there is you get your money back, but the money is you are in a Zimbabwe or a Venezuela situation where the time when you get your money back, the money is basically worthless. That is a real risk if you get into a very high inflationary situation. And after 10 years, when you get your money, it's worth nothing. So that is really the risk, not really default. There was another con infrastructure, which I could, what infrastructure is being financed through these bonds? The first infrastructure bonds were issued by the government of Kenya in 2009. And for the first and second issues, they actually specified which uh, project was being invested in, how much was being invested for roads, how much was being invested for waterworks and how much was being invested uh, where. They dropped that after the first two bonds. So after that, they have never specified where they are investing, what infrastructure they're investing in. Is it something that should concern investors? Technically it should, but really at the end of the day, we are in it for the return. And if you're getting a tax-free return, I don't know whether one should bother with it too much. I think that, that those are the questions that I've addressed. If there are any more, happy to look at them. Kasiva and Churchill, maybe you can give us your thoughts whether it matters where the government puts in the money that he traces through bonds or whether you're like Sunil, as long as you're getting your returns, it doesn't matter. Well, the bond market is quite um, attractive. And from the perspective of an investor, I don't think I care. No, I don't. As long as I'm getting my um, return. So no. I'll take a different view on this. Infrastructure bonds basically fall under those kind of bonds, which are use of proceeds kind of type of bond, whereby what makes it an infrastructure bond is because the proceeds of these bonds are supposed to be used somewhere. But if we don't even have visibility around these specific monies will end up into, at some point, investors will be raising those questions. And let me just put it in a broader picture. Right now, I think uh, the whole investment world is getting into this whole ESG, environmental, social, and uh, governance issues, which is now part and parcel of their risk profiling or investment profiling. So probably this infrastructure bond 
might fall in between either environment or social amongst this uh, architecture. And by and large, we've even been seeing some of the clients in developed markets, they are trying to ask some tough questions to issuers. The use of proceeds, are they going to where they are supposed to go legitimately or they might end up being siphoned elsewhere? And that's the risk that we are having, whereby we are seeing bonds being wrapped into infrastructure bonds for the sake of, uh, it's just a name, but they don't end up going into the ultimate use. Well, they might be getting into some of the infrastructure projects, but the fact that you don't have visibility around that, that's a big, big issue. I think Parliament two years ago through the Budget and Appropriation Committee raised this matter and it pronounced that uh, to give a list of all the projects that will benefit from financing just come out. And we haven't seen that kind of a list, at least to the best of my knowledge. So that's a big, big risk for me. I would chime in here. I think I agree with Churchill in the sense that I think it's part of maybe social and also responsibility to actually find out where some of these funds are being channeled to. Usually it's good to follow up where your money went and actually doing the work that it's supposed to be doing. So I think it's quite an oversight that there is no specificity in terms of where some of this bond money is flowing to. That would be my two cents on that. But perhaps let's see if there are any questions we may come in before we wrap up. I think there was one about uh, MTNs, uh, the medium term notes, and the difference in terms of tax between listed and uh, unlisted bonds. I don't know who can take that. Maybe Sonia? Yeah. Uh, so listed bonds and unlisted bonds. Previously, all treasury bonds were uh, taxed at. Okay. This firstly varies on the investor uh, category. So let's try to take this case for individual investors. For an individual investor, the tax rate on a list on a treasury bond is either 10% or 15%, depending on the bond issue. Of course, legal infrastructure bonds, which are tax free. If you invest in a corporate bond, whether it is listed or unlisted, doesn't matter. The tax rate is 15%. And since I think 2020, now that is the final tax rate. There's no further tax. So 15% tax rate on corporate bonds, whether listed or unlisted. For individuals, it is depends on the specific bond issue. It could be 10% or 15%. For a corporate, the tax rate for a corporate investor or for seen some questions for Chamas, if you invest in a bond, the tax rate is 30%. So there will be a withholding tax of 10% or 15%. And then when you file your returns, you're supposed to top it up and pay the balance uh, tax. So that is a tax rate. It does not matter whether it is listed or unlisted. It is more on the tax status of the investor that the tax rate gets determined. Does that answer the question, Eric? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, question to Churchill, the EABX platform. Any thoughts on that? The one that is uh, being championed? By, by the government? Uh, well, I don't have much information beyond what's in the public. This is basically the integration of all the Eastern Africa exchanges, at least whereby they'll be able to trade the bonds in a unified exchange. The, the thinking behind it, at least, is to improve the liquidity of all the bonds in the East African space. But I think a couple of weeks ago or last month, we had an interview by the NSCCO do some pushback uh, against that kind of EABX platform. But from the people in Uganda and uh, Tanzania, they seem super excited around this EABX. So, but I don't have further 
information apart from what's out in the public. As we finish, I had another co-host, Kigen, who unfortunately had speaker issues, but I would let him give uh, maybe closing remarks and your thoughts around the whole discussion that you had today. Thank you, Dan. Uh, Twitter had a bit of an issue, but I'm very happy that he was there to, to guide the discussion as well as Eric. I just want to pass my regards, appreciations to Chil, to Sunil, and, and of course, Mikavangi. Thank you so much. I've learned a lot. Thank you so much for the listeners who tuned in to the session. It's been a pleasure having you. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, Kigel. I hope that guys have picked up something. Thank you, Churchill. Thank you, Sunil. Thank you, Kasiva, for taking the time to just share your expertise. There is one last question about the provision to add beneficiaries. So maybe Sunil or Churchill can tackle that as they also give their closing remarks. No, I don't think the central bank has a provision for uh, beneficiaries, but you can open a joint account. So let's say... Uh, husband and wife or uh, father and uh, child, you can open a joint account and th that is possible, but I, do, I don't, the central bank does not have a provision for a beneficiary uh, to be added onto the account. Okay. Closing thoughts. Okay. I hope it has been an uh, informative session for the listeners. As I mentioned midway through, there is a lot of jargon involved with the bond trading and unfortunately it's very difficult to declutter that in a session like this. One uh, statistic that I wanted to uh, just possibly mention in closing, we are seeing the number of individual investors going into bonds really leapfrogging from the last few years. For instance, I think just looking at the last one and a half from June 2020, the investment by uh, non-institutional investors, yeah, so which largely includes individuals, was about 134 billion. As at 31st December, it had jumped to 241 uh, billion. So about an 80% increase over a period of 18 months. So we are seeing more and more investors realizing the benefits of uh, investing in treasury uh, bonds as opposed to other means of saving uh, such as banks. I think the interest and the number of participants who have been on this uh, session, I think is indicative of the interest that, that is there in the market for investing. It's a little bit daunting for first-time investors when you start hearing all these terms, but it's definitely worthwhile investing in bonds for building up savings uh, as of a bank where you're going to earn 7 to 8% and be paying tax on it. So definitely I would uh, suggest that the listeners on this session keep pursuing this. If you have more queries, ask about it, Google about it. If you want to throw me some queries on a DM, I'll try and answer those over the next few days. Or you want specific information on bonds or on the secondary market, I would I'll try my best to attend to any queries that come subsequently as well. Thank you. Chacho, closing thoughts. And perhaps there's a, a random question here for you about what's the longest IFB current? Thanks uh, for that. The longest IFB is 21, if not 25. I sometimes lose uh, the tenants if I look at a number of countries, uh, but should be somewhere 21 or 25. And that's the longest IFB that has ever been issued. So closing remarks, I think this, this happens to be one of the big boys, but now based in the U.S. So they start by saying that bonds that matter, and then they show families playing United. Uh, but basically they're trying to dump the bit of uh, that matter in that case, they bond. and clearly during this two-hour session, the interest of uh, the listeners 
and there's been heightened interest more so the ISPs. Thank you. Thank you, Eric and Kalia, uh, Chachin and uh, Sunin. I've been in this space for quite some time, but it is always um, a learning process uh, for me. And I, I can see there's so much um, interest in the bond market specifically on the infrastructure bonds. So it's something everyone should consider having this type of asset class in their portfolio. You can be able to invest through the bank or Novo, but it's best to have um, your CDS account. It's not the easiest um, process to do, but it's worth it. Um, if you have questions, um, I'll be able to take John uh, tomorrow and the day after I meet on my DM. So thank you for that. Thank you for everyone who took their time on a Friday to be able to do that. Yes, thank you so much, uh, Kalia. What are your closing thoughts? Do you know how to advise your folks at home how to invest in bonds? How are you going to explain to your parents what bonds are, first of all? To my parents, I'll just tell them it's an investment where you put in money and then you get a fixed return every six months for a period of year. And then at the, at the end of it, you get your principal back plus the final interest payment. All right. So closing thoughts. Thank you so much for co-hosting on the spaces. I think it's your first time. Uh, really well done. Ah, thank you. Thank you. Gold star for me. Few thoughts. Ah, no, just thanks for the invite. Thanks for the passion that you had. Personally, I've learned uh, a lot as well. Thank you, Kasiva, for joining us. Thank you, Sunil. Thanks for Churchill. Thank you, Tegan, for even helping us with structuring the discussion on how the flow would go. Thanks, everyone, for listening as well. Taking two hours on a Friday is not something to be taken for granted. So thanks, everyone. The perfect point to plug in your podcast. So can people find you? Yes. Yeah. So Keegan, myself, and another gentleman called Easter, we do have a podcast called Kenya's Market Map. You can find us on Twitter at marketmap underscore KE. It's a weekly podcast where we discuss events that have happened in financial markets every single week. So events during the week. And we also pick a stock every week that we're going to discuss. So on Monday, the podcast comes out on all the major podcast streaming platforms. So Spotify, Apple, Google, Anchor, also on our website, kenyasmarketmap.com. You will find the latest episodes. Also on YouTube, Kenya's Market Map. We've covered quite a bit of topics over the months. We started in August. We look forward to getting new viewers. And thanks, Mwango, for the shout out. Thank you so much, guests, uh, hosts, and uh, all the people in the audience for joining us today.